You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Let me do this. We're going to pray together, and then we're going to open up the book of Romans, and we're going to continue in our sermon series in the book of Romans. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we do thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your people. We now ask that you would speak through your word, that we would come away from this place changed, that you, by your word, because of your spirit, would continue to transform us. Father, would you have your way with us, because you know what's best. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans this morning. We're going to tackle a touchy text. We will be in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. We're going to finish, Lord willing, Romans chapter 1 this morning. And as you're turning there, I want to say that as a a proponent of the sovereignty of God, I don't think it is coincidental, nor is it an accident, that your pastor this morning, I was born in the early 70s. And so one of the largest cultural influences on my life, one of the biggest impacting factors of my life, was none other than Star Wars. Of course, Star Wars. Whether you hold to the notion that it was really in a galaxy far, far away, and a long, long time ago, or maybe you believe that it is as yet in the future, Star Wars was very influential in how I thought about humanity on the whole. I mean, on the one hand, maybe it's set in the future because they have advanced technology, maybe it's set way, way, way in the distant past in a different location across the stars, but it's interesting because there's still a bunch of just human beings And yes, they've learned to coexist with other species, but generally speaking, these people, whether it's thousands of years in the future or thousands of years in the past, are still dealing with the same stuff. You've got awkward adolescent angst. You've got some feathery hair, which I had in the 70s. You've got anger. You've got strife. You've got mistrust. You've got animosity. You've got rage. You've got all of these things. There's more vests, apparently, then, which I'm a big fan of. But really, Star Wars just sort of gives us this idea, as does, by the way, Star Trek, those two competing franchises, that is certainly set in the future, that essentially human beings are the same now and that civilization and the society is the same now as it always has been and it always will be. We just have more technology. That we're just going to essentially keep going and as technology improves, we're going to get a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. I mean, we finally figured out how to make the Kessel run in less than 12 parsecs. Am I right? Nobody? Nobody? All right. So society just sort of continues on. We get a little bit better. We get a little bit more refined. And we learn to coexist a little bit more. And that's just how the universe has gone and how it will always go. The problem with that sentiment and that notion is that it is profoundly absent in history. It has never happened ever. There has never, ever been a successful, persistent empire, nation, people group at all. 
Every nation ever in the history of humankind starts off with some underpinnings of conservative social constructs and then over generations they begin to falter and they begin to get more distant and they begin to degrade until finally the strongest civilizations ever inevitably become an archaeological dig. That is the story of our species. Every people group, nation, tribe, empire, regime ever starts off in a way, goes through a heyday, and ends up being an archaeological dig. Not only that, it's also a biblical truth. That nations, peoples, do not merely just persist and keep getting a little bit better because nothing drifts to good. In fact, what we're going to find out is that a people group, a nation, an empire, a regime that is left alone will implode. Because what we're going to see from this morning's text is a very difficult notion, but it's a truth. It's our big idea for the morning, and it goes like this. If I can get there. Having it your way is the wrath of God. I know we all want that, and we're all fans of the Burger King slogan, but having it your way is, in fact, the wrath of God. Can't I just be left alone and get a boost or a nudge every now and then from God? No, because that kind of God does not exist. Having it your way is, in fact, the wrath of God in your life. And when that begins to happen, when you get what you want, when you want at all times, be very, very frightened that that is the wrath of God being revealed in your life. Now, I'm going to read our passage this morning, Romans 1, 18 to 32, and then we'll try to unpack it and see if we can apply it. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Paul writes, For, now before I go any farther, I have to make note of, this passage exists in context. This, this is not okay to simply drop in out of the clear blue ether and begin to preach this passage. We'll have to understand, we'll come back to this in a moment. This passage exists in a context for a purpose. Written by a person to some people in a place for a purpose. We have to understand that if we're going to understand what else Paul is saying here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." If you're the kind of person who makes notes in your Bible, make a note around verse 21. If you're not the kind of person who makes notes in your Bible, become that person today. See? It's a transformation. Chapter 1, verse 21 is a super central passage. We all need to know Romans 1, 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they, become, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Super instructive, by the way. We must recognize that Paul busts into worship because he can't help it. That's instructive. 
Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is what one of my friends would call two yellow verses. Questionable content there. I didn't write it. Deal with it. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not be done. Verse 29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, <sighs> disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. The overarching theme of the book of Romans, we're going to say this hopefully for the entire length and duration of the series, goes like this. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God given freely to man in the person of Jesus Christ. Now that is really, really important because we get that theme from verses 16 and 17. We looked at that last week. We have to know that that's the theme of Romans and what Paul has just spoken of when we come to verse 18. Paul starts off verse 18 with four. The righteousness of God is revealed or is in the process of being revealed. God's doing something. Do you see? He's revealing righteousness and the access to that righteousness, which is the Son of God, Jesus. The righteousness of God is being revealed because the wrath of God is also being revealed. There is a context. What we must understand, why am I making such a big deal about this? Because I will tell you, church family, this past week, I have listened to and read, I can't tell you how many sermons about this passage. I can't tell you how many commentaries and articles I've written about this passage. And the majority of them essentially go like this. Sin is bad. People are awful. You should not sin. It's really bad. Stop it. Aren't you ashamed for sinning? Sin's terrible. It's really bad. It's the reason for all of our problems. And I, sin is terrible. Stop it. No, really, stop it. Sin is bad. And I read all that and I go, oh, oh gosh, you're right. I suck. <laughs> and I try harder. I mean, I did. I got up Monday. I tried harder. And then, like, my wife walked by and she did that. And I was like, oh, and I launched. I was like, oh, it's worse than I thought. I'm ter I, I can't. I don't have it in me to be better, to try harder, to sin less. It's not there. Sanctification, a lot of them said, is when you sin less. I was like, sin less? I don't sin less. I'm just tired. <laughs> Who has the strength anymore? I, no, no, no. This is not what that passage is about. This passage singularly is about the just condemnation of humankind. We said it a few weeks ago. All human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is grace. Paul will now, starting in this verse, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, explain that whether you're in chapter 1 or chapter 2 or chapter 3, we're all in there. The condemnation of the human race is just. Every single person is a casserole. 
We all have all of these ingredients in us that makes up the depravity of a human heart. The only question is, in what measure? But it's all in all of us. Paul is lining out the depths of human depravity, which we must understand or will never appreciate the glory and the brilliance of the gospel. If you just think you're a little sniffly sick, then you don't really need to die and come back to life because that's what the gospel does to people. Chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, is putting us to death. It says, if this is you, you deserve to die, and everybody knows it implicitly, intuitively, as a species, we deserve to die. Now, that's terrible news, but the solution to 18 is 17. I have been going all throughout this week as I've been on my bike, as I've been walking around talking to people. Oh, the solution to 18 is 17. The wrath of God is being revealed, but the righteousness of God is also being revealed. And it comes through one singular point. It is a person. But before we can get well and get life, we have to see just how deeply depraved and dark and desperate our situation is. So we begin now, not the feel-good text of the day, I'm sure, But from this passage all the way through chapter 3, it is the doctrine of condemnation, how we're all in there. So let me read this very quickly through again. We'll unpack it, pull out some pieces, and then we'll try to apply it. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed. It is being apocalypsis. In the same way that verse 17 says the righteousness of God is being revealed, so too is the wrath. But I want you to understand the word order. The righteousness is being revealed because the wrath of God is being revealed. Now remember, this is what we do at Bethel, exposition. We want to understand not just what these words mean in syntactical order, but Paul was writing this to a specific group of readership. Paul is sitting in Corinth, AD 57, writing to some people in Rome for a purpose, so that they will understand the gospel and what God is, what God has done. He's not merely issuing a treatise on the fact that sin is bad. We got that. We know that. He says, the righteousness of God is being revealed. Verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now listen how the wrath is being revealed. Against all ungodliness. That's literally that which is against God. Against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. That which has not been set right yet. That which has not been enrightified, if you were here last week. We talked about justified and righteousness are the same word. That which has not been enrightified, the wrath of God is being revealed against it. It's happening now. Now, it not, might not be what we expect. When we think of the wrath of God, if we were to play word association and I had you close your eyes and say, what does the wrath of God look like? You and I would probably have this image because we grew up watching cartoons. We would have this image of some old guy with a long white beard sitting on a throne tossing down lightning bolts. That's the wrath of God as he's getting people. I would stub my toe and my mom would say, God used to wait a while, but now he just gets you. I'd go, "Ah, I don't think I like this God. If he's just waiting around to stub my pinky toe, that's just mean. Mom, I don't think that's how that works. She has since repented. I don't know what you think about when you think about the wrath of God, but what this passage is telling us is having your way is the wrath of God. When you just untethered get to do what you want, when you want, with whomever you want, it is actually the wrath of God being poured out in your life. The wrath of God, it's being revealed. We didn't know that's what it was. We thought, you know, God was just distant and disinterested. Oh no, 
It is his wrath poured out on a species or on a person. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against, interesting, ungodliness and unrighteousness. Not against the people. Because in this age, God still does love rebellious, heart-sick sinners who run in the wrong direction, like me. And he seizes them and he turns them because he loves them. He loves to take objects of wrath and turn them into trophies of his grace. But his wrath is being revealed against this sense, this attitude of ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, by their not set rightedness, suppress the truth. When we carve for ourselves paths of a life that we think this will make me succeed, this will make me happy, this will get me what I want, but it is outside of and apart from God's plan, what we are actually doing actively, whether we fully realize it or not, the Bible is telling us that is a suppression of the truth. That is a suppression of the truth, and God will not honor it. He will pour out his wrath upon that. Does that mean he's going to hit you with a lightning bolt or make you stub your pinky toe? No. He's going to say, have it your way. Have it your way. Because he knows in the history of humankind, seven and a half billion people alive on the earth today. Previously, the whole history of our world, we think maybe 14 and a half billion people have ever lived ever. And it has never worked out well for them ever, not a one ever, to have it their way. Because that is in fact the wrath of God revealed. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Side verse or corollary is Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Their line goes out to all the world. All of creation is proclaiming the existence of God. The invitation, the Hebrew word is the line. A Hebrew cantor, a worship leader, would sing out a line and the congregation was supposed to respond in kind. Psalm 19 says that creation is the cantor of the cosmos, that it declares the glory of God. How will the people respond? And they say, meh, I can do better. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now this is fascinating. Verse 20 is brilliant literature from the Apostle Paul. It's a play on words. Very, very clever. He says, for his invisible attributes, namely, two things about God, two things that are exclusively God's, his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power, so his eternality and his omnipotence, and his divine nature. He's not a person. He's not a super being. He's not a Marvel character. He's not an angel. He's not a really nice person. He is divine. He alone is God. Have been clearly perceived. The word is literally seen. Hear hear it again. His invisible attributes, his divine power and his divine nature, or his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen. That's fascinating. God is invisible. His attributes, his eternality, his divinity, his power. But his attributes have been seen ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Now, this is what we call general revelation. It's not special revelation. In other words, no, a person cannot walk outside, see the stars, and enter into a saving relationship with Jesus. 
That's not the program. That's not how that happens. You don't go and look at a tree and go, wow, that's really lovely. I believe that Jesus is my substitutionary atonement. It's not how that works. And yes, I know that there are some non-normative occasions when Jesus directly saves somebody. I know the stories. I've read the magazine articles. I get it. I'm saying the normative expression is that creation is a proclamation of the existence of God and what he is like so that all people have at least the ability to ask questions and when they do, God will provide answers in some way. Either through literature that just so happens to get dropped out of an airplane, through a satellite broadcast, through the worldwide interweb, somehow, if a person begins to respond and ask questions, God will find it, hopefully through the preaching of a missionary who is giving the gospel in some form or fashion, so that they are without excuse. I get asked this question very often, what about those who have never heard? And I take them to Romans 1. They are without excuse. And I remind them, all human condemnation is just. Any human salvation is a grace. That is the truth of the book of Romans. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Let me, let me summarize and synthesize verse 21 thus. Wrath happens because worship doesn't. They know God, they refuse Him, and they do not give thanks. They reject, and they do not give thanks. And so God says, then you can be at the center of your universe, and you will find yourself dangerously unqualified and undersized for the job. And that is a wrath. He turns them over. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him. Paul actually has in mind here Genesis 3. There was a time when Adam and Eve and generations who came after them, we don't know for how long, but they actually knew of Yahweh himself. They knew him, but that knowing began to fade. They knew him, they decided he wasn't enough, that they were being held out on. There was something better that they could grasp themselves. They did not give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. This is their their thinking and their feeling becomes twisted, becomes bent. Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools. In other words, they became proponents of what we call common sense. What Paul will talk about in Galatians, elementary principles that do not save a single human soul. Verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in birds and animals and creeping things. All ancient deities would personify in an animal, in a bird, in a creepy thing, or even in a human, their virtues, whether it was war or wisdom or hunting or fertility. Because what they were saying is, we can make something and make it obligated to us. The deep, dark sin of the human heart is, I want to be God. I will not revere that one as God. And God says, then I turn you over to that. Let's see how those gods serve you. Verse 24, Paul's going to say four different times he gives them over. He gives them over. He gives them over. He gives them over. That is, he turns them over to themselves. He lets them have their way. It is, in fact, a wrath. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. God had displayed and demonstrated, this is what I am, this is what I'm like. And they began to say things like, no, we think God is like this. We think God just wants us to be unhappy, dour, rule followers. And so we reject that. And God said, that's never who I've been. It's 
not what I'm like at all. And they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Who is blessed forever? Amen. Paul busts into worship because he knows that wrath happens because worship doesn't. Paul can't help himself. He thinks about his God and he worships. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This two-verse passage has, of course, been the stuff of a great deal of political debate and religious fervor and all sorts of things. What we have to remember is that the Apostle Paul is writing to a people in a place for a purpose. This was a normative expression in the Roman Empire in Rome. This is an illustration that Paul is using. He could have chosen any other number of sins to talk about the, the danger of entering into a lifestyle or a pattern of sin and depravity. So let me say this, on the one hand, this is not the scarlet letter and the unpardonable go around the corner, you can never come back kind of an issue. On the other hand, Paul makes no, um, he pulls no punch to say that it actually is sin. Paul could just have talked about uh, spousal abuse, which was going on in Rome at the time as well but he doesn't. He says, hey, this is going on in Rome and people are trying to normalize it and justify it and enrightify it. And God says, no, that's not my purpose. That is not my plan. If you want to try to make this a big political or social issue, help yourself. That's not what Paul is doing here. Verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, again, there's that recognition of God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. So Paul's going to give us four categories of depravity. Four categories of depravity, and then he's going to give us 17 bullet points of those four categories. Four categories and then 17 quick hits that are just sort of not an exhaustive list, but hey, here are some of the ones that every single human being deals with. The four categories, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. I want you to notice how this list is all people pointed against people. The great irony is that uh, every society ever says, can't we all just get along? Can't we all just agree with one another? If we could obliterate the false narrative of a religion or a higher being, we could all finally just get together. But apparently the pattern of all human history and the biblical decree is that when people have it their way, they inevitably and always turn on and against one another ever to the extent that they begin to crumble from the inside and they become nothing more than an empty shell, ultimately an archaeological dig. This is always the pattern. When people are given their own way, God says, I pour out my wrath on you. I leave you alone. People turn on themselves. So again, this list. Uh, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. We ran out of stuff to do, so we're going to create our own flavors of evil. You ever done that? We'll have a show of hands here later. Disobedient to parents. Yes, there is a downward progression in here. You're, you're boastful, you're haughty, haughty, you're arrogant, you're insolent, you're a gossip, you're a slander, you're murderous. You disobey your parents. 
because that is a social construct that God has ordained. And if a student, a child, cannot show respect rightly to their parents, then they are a rebel before God as well. Not saying that parents are perfect. Clearly the ones in my house are not. However, it is a downward depression of a social fabric. Verse 31, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, mm, they give approval to those who practice them. That is the definition of worldliness. I'm going to engage in my program of perversion, but to get affirmation, I'm going to encourage you to do the same so that it is normalized. That's worldliness. When unrighteousness is normalized and righteousness is deemed reprehensible. I know it's hard for you to imagine a society and a culture in which that would be the case, but let me say it again to just let your sanctified imagination run there. Worldliness is when unrighteousness is deemed normalized or normative and righteousness is deemed morally reprehensible. That's very interesting. Paul is telling us that the doctrine of depravity is a beautiful thing because it shines a brighter light on the doctrine of the gospel. And he gives us these four categories with these 17 facets of this dirty, dirty gemstone to say, all of us have this. Let me be very clear. All of us have all of this. Our human hearts are kind of like, the best example I can give, our human hearts are kind of like a soundboard. We have a soundboard back here in our sound booth and we show the soundboard and it has all these different knobs, all these different little sliders, all these different little switches that you can flick. And I want you to just sort of imagine this is your heart. This is your soul. And every one of those sliders is one of the 17. But your soundboard has like 100 or more. And for some of you, your slider bar is all the way at the top in issues of sexual deviance. One way or the other, your slider bar is all the way at the top. But you've never struggled with substance abuse. You've never struggled with rage. You've never struggled with slander or malice. For some of you, those are all the way at the top. But sexual deviance, not your issue. Theft and greed, not your problem. Some of you, maybe gluttony and just overindulgence for escapism. Maybe that slider is all the way up but all the rest of them are way down and you're just not as susceptible. But please, understand what Paul is saying. Every single one of us has every single one of these in us. And if you think for a moment, oh, no, 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 not me. I have one or two issues. My biggest sin is that I care too much. good for you except that the wrath of God is upon you. You misunderstand the glory of the gospel. You are no better than anybody else. God's unique wiring of you manifests itself differently, but all of us have a different soundboard. For some of our issues, our sliders are way, way up. And by the way, it changes as you age. There are things I struggle with now I didn't even know existed. There are things I used to struggle with in my teenage years, not a problem anymore. And by the way, your enemy, the devil, he can mix your board, baby. He knows what your jam is. He got you. He's like, oh, watch it. You're like, where did that come from? I'm like, oh, yeah. Tell me you don't know this to be true. You're going to walk out of here and be like, it's going to happen. All of us have all of the depravity in us. There is no one who is fairly righteous. No, not one, Paul will say later on as we study through the book of Romans. And what's the tragedy is when God says, but you think you've got this? You think you can find your own success and happiness? The wrath of God is revealed. 
I am turning you over to yourself. Having it your way is, in fact, the wrath of God. So I want to reiterate, this is not merely a passage about preaching through the horrors of sin and telling us to stop it. This was written of with gross detail in the 5th century B.C. in Greece. And it's happening in Star Trek thousands of years into the future, and it's happening in the here and now. The point is, human beings are depraved, and we need a Savior. That's the gospel. So if I can, let me just see if I can uh, apply this with three very quick implications or principles. Number one goes like this. Our mind is the scene of the crime. Now, let me be very clear. When I say mind, I do not mean the physiological brain that exists in your cranium. I don't mean that. I want to use the biblical meaning of mind, which is synonymous with heart or soul or spirit or being. Your heart, your mind, your your thoughts and your feelings. Or if I could put one synonym to all of it would be your attitude. Your attitude, that's the scene of the crime. Our thinking gets bent. We are all subject to what is called the noetic effect of sin. Noeo is our attitude, is our thinking, is our feeling. All of us are looking at the world through dirty glasses. All of us. We think we perceive reality properly, but we don't. Because of sin that impacts and skews and twists and bends, our perceptions are wrong. We are all subject to the noetic effect of sin. Our attitude comes into this world twisted and broken and bent. That's the scene of the crime. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, Evil is what you get when the mind is twisted, out of shape, and the body goes along for the ride. Every action is the result of an attitude. Every single action. It didn't just happen by some sheer act of, of my will being, being wicked. It's, there's an attitude that's pre-existing that says, hey, I think God's holding out on me somewhere. I think I want to grasp this for myself. See also Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Who listened to a creature who told her that the creator was insufficient. It's a lie as old as time. Our mind is the scene of the crime. And when does this kind of stuff happen? When we fail to worship. God says, it's bad for you. It's bad for you. When we fail to worship, when we fail to give him thanks. So we might summarize it like this. We've already said this, I'll say it again. What's wrong with our world despite all the other stuff that's going on, all the other ideas and frustrations, it's simply like this. What's wrong with our world? A lack of worship. What's wrong with people? What is wrong with people? Maybe I should say it that way. Make it sound more like my own voice. It's that they don't worship. And that I don't worship. I don't recognize him and give him thanks. Wrath happens because worship doesn't. Number two, sin is its own consequence. Sin is its own consequence. I know that for many of us, we think of sin because of our culture and our context, that sin is all of this fun stuff that God more or less arbitrarily tells me that I can't do. Since this fun stuff that, I mean, all my friends are getting to do, but because I'm a Christian, I can't have any fun. How come they all get to sin and I don't? Sin is itself its own consequence. The wrath of God is not a lightning bolt or a stubbed pinky toe. It is me getting my way. 
And it has never, ever, ever worked out for anybody ever. Yes, God is righteous and he is moral and he's pure and he is good and he is holy, holy, holy. And in fact, his holiness means that he will accomplish the enrightification, the setting right of the whole created order. But he also loves sinners and defiant, rebellious sinners. And he sees that when they behave in these ways, it is bad for them. God is not merely passive and saying, well, I sure hope it drifts to good. It'll come back around in its own good time. No, no, no. His pulling away is wrath poured out upon them so that they are softened and made receptive and ready to receive the truth and the glory of the gospel. It's been said that hell is the absence of relational mercy from God. And so the wrath of God being revealed in people's lives today is him pulling back and removing his relational mercy from them. Now the problem is, it's not always easy to tell when that's happening. It's not always easy to tell when people are living under the wrath of God because they might look terrific. A couple of years ago, we had a number of trees that had to be taken out of our, uh, of our property there. And I don't know much about trees. I'm from the Texas Panhandle where we don't have vegetation. But a tree expert showed up and he said, hey, these trees all need to go. And his name was Jesus, and so I trust him. I mean, I asked him into my heart. He took my trees. It was a great thing. Jesus said, these trees have to go. And I was like, well, who am I going to argue with Jesus? Jesus, they got to go. They had to go. And I said, I kind of feel like I might be getting scammed here a little bit. But again, Jesus. So he took the trees down. And sure enough, when the trunks were all laying down, I was able to see that, oh, my goodness, he was right. He said that these trees had a, a root fungus and they were being eaten out and rotten from within, from the inside. It was even going up the trunk, even into some of the branches. And I said, but, but the leaves are green and the bark is healthy. He said, but it's rotten from within. And I never would have been able to tell. And he said, if you leave this here, it's going to fall and hurt someone. And I thought, I got to write that down. That's going to be a good sermon, sermon illustration one day. <laughs> sure enough. Sure enough, it's not always easy to tell when someone is under wrath because, you know, they're getting to do things their way. But inside there is a rotten that all of us are prone to. But the gospel roots all of those things out. Well, the third point, the virtuous life is the only life that actually works. The virtuous life is the only life that actually works. It's so obvious, it's so simplistic, it's so basic, and yet it's so revolutionary. We buy the lie that says, hey, we can have it our way, and it has never, ever, ever worked out for a single human being, ever. But it's the virtuous life. When we realize, oh, God has made me for this, and when I live according to his design for me, then I experience joy, then I experience peace, then I experience purpose and weight and value and significance, and then I am unleashed to actually be a blessing to somebody else. And because God loves me so much, and because he loves you so much, he does not want you to use yourself for something other than which it was made. You can try to use your iPhone as a hammer. It won't go well for you. You can try to use your cat as a parachute. It won't go well for you. You love your cat. It's fluffy. It's delightful. But if you try to use it to fall out of a plane, you're both going to die. And because your cat loves you and you love your cat, you don't want to use your cat for that. I know that's stupid. And that's what God says. When you try to use your person for things for which it was not made, it destroys you and those around you. And I love you. So I'm pouring out wrath, not shooting you with lightning bolts. I'm pulling back. I'm giving you over. Hear the gospel. 
and to turn. Hear the gospel. It is the virtuous life when we actually yield and submit and remember that wrath happens because worship doesn't. Matt alluded to it earlier. We become like that which we behold. So God says, look at us. Look at me. Look at me. You with unveiled face, 2 Corinthians 3.18, are being transformed. Why? Because you're looking at God and you are worshiping. We reflect what we revere. I don't know all of you that well, but I can tell what's most important in your life by spending just a few moments with you. And when we begin to reflect the things that we revere most and it's not the Lord, we begin to enter into a season of being under wrath. Now, I should say one more thing. If you are a Christian, you will never ever fully experience the wrath of God. We'll get there in chapter 8, verse 1. You will never experience condemnation because the Lord your God, Jesus, has experienced that for you. You will experience chastisement, discipline, and correction. But if you're not a believer and you are under wrath, I pray that you will hear the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself. Ah, and to one another. All of those 17 things that are people against one another, the gospel obliterates all of that because we are found in Christ. I don't have to strive. The Father loves me. I love the Father. And I'm free and unleashed to love you. Not your lives for me, but I can now live this uniquely Christian notion of my life for you at any cost. And so may God have His way for us because it is best. Having it my way is the wrath of God, and so I pray that I never do. In just a moment, we're going to take communion together. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to ask that uh, you continue to worship, that you would remember and reflect who God is, what He has done. Father, I do pray if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that you would lead them irresistibly into a saving knowledge of your Son. The call of creation goes out that they will be struck they will seek the answer. We know that it is Jesus. Father, I pray that you would continue to have your way with us this morning, that you would be honored because of Jesus taking our wrath for us. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.